Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We will begin with why, in spite of Republicans burning books, banning abortion, lying about election outcomes, targeting transgender youth, ignoring climate change, and supporting a fascist coup attempt against the U.S. government, many Democrats are more angry at Biden than the party actively engaged in ending American democracy and installing one-party rule by a failed and criminal ex-president. Joining us is Representative Ro Khanna, who represents California's 17th Congressional District, located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, and is serving his third term. He sits on the House Committee's on Agriculture, Armed Services and Oversight and Reform, where he chairs the Environmental Subcommittee. Additionally, Representative Khanna is the Deputy Whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, serves as an Assistant Whip for the Democratic Caucus, and is the Democratic Vice Chair of the House Caucus on India and Indian Americans. He also served in President Barack Obama's administration as Deputy Assistant Secretary at the United States Department of Commerce. Then we'll examine the $839 billion defense budget in the House-passed National Defense Authorization Act, to which $37 billion that neither the Pentagon or the White House wanted was added. Joining us is Julia Gledhill, an analyst at the Center for Defense Information at the Project on Government Oversight, where she works to expose government waste, corruption, and wrongdoing with specific focus on the Department of Defense. She's the co-author of an article at Tom Dispatch, How Pentagon Contractors Are Cashing In on Russia's Invasion, and we will discuss how the real defense budget, if you factor in intelligence, nuclear weapons, pensions, the VA, and the Coast Guard, etc., is more like $1.4 trillion and counting. Then finally, we will examine the analogies between German industrialists supporting Hitler, who they thought was an embarrassment, and American plutocrats like Peter Thiel, bankrolling Senate candidates like J.D. Vance, who have likened Trump to Hitler, but are now devoted Trumpsters doubling down on the stop the steal big lie. Joining us is David de Jong, a journalist who previously covered European banking and finance from Amsterdam and hidden wealth and billionaire fortunes from New York for Bloomberg News. His work has also appeared in Bloomberg Businessweek, the Wall Street Journal and the Dutch Financial Daily. A native of the Netherlands, he currently lives in Tel Aviv and is the author of the new book, Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Representative Rokana, who represents California's 17th Congressional District, located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, and is serving his third term. He sits 
on the House Committee on Agriculture, Armed Services and Oversight and Reform, where he chairs the Environmental Subcommittee. And additionally, he is the Deputy Whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and serves as an Assistant Whip for the Democratic Caucus and the Democratic Vice Chair and House Caucus on India and Indian Americans. And he also served in President Barack Obama's administration as Deputy Assistant Secretary at the U.S. Department of Commerce. Welcome to Background Briefing, Congressman Ro Khanna. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And today in Massachusetts, uh, President Biden did not uh, make declare a national emergency on climate change, as some had hoped, but he did lay out what he could do and will do by executive action. But he also went on, went on to point out that not one Republican supports him. So either are the Republicans, do they not believe in global warming or which is clearly happening, if you can look at what's happening in Europe as we, as we speak, or don't they care? What is it? I think they have a base of voters uh, who they're pandering to, uh, and they are unwilling to look at the science uh, of global warming uh, and take action. But more than that, they're costing us our uh, ability to have a new industrial base. I mean, when you look at who is going to lead in a key sector of the 21st century, that includes solar manufacturing. That includes batteries. That includes uh, electric vehicles. That includes wind farms. And I would think that the Republicans would want the United States to lead, not China. Uh, Just under President Biden, we had a factory open for 4,000 jobs in Kansas, the reddest of red states, uh, to produce batteries. That was because the president's leadership, he had that uh, happen with Rahm Emanuel, our ambassador to Japan. Uh, So this is about jobs. It's about reindustrialization. And it's sad to me that we can't get bipartisan support for it. So in the introduction of today's program, I posed the question which I was going to discuss with you. So what I said was, why, in spite of Republicans burning books, banning abortion, lying about election outcomes, targeting transgender youth, ignoring climate change, and supporting a fascist coup attempt against the U.S. government, Many Democrats are more angry at Biden than the party (laughs) actively engaged in ending American democracy and installing one-party rule by a failed and criminal ex-president. So (laughs) there you have my question. Well, look, I get in trouble with the left when I defend President Biden, and I've said I'm going to be supporting him for re-election and that he defeated Donald Trump, and I uh, believe he's entitled to, to run again to defeat him again. But I'll tell you why, why I think people can be frustrated. For 40 years, this country made a major mistake, and that is that we took away people's ability to make a living in many places in America. We shipped away our production. We didn't pay attention to rural communities. We didn't pay sufficient attention to black or brown communities. Wealth kept piling up in places like Silicon Valley in New York. The middle class since 1980 has lost 25 percent of its wealth. Communities have been totally decimated, deindustrialized. And there is a sense in among many people in this country that we need a bold economic agenda that tackles the geographic inequalities, the inequalities of the working class, that brings production back to America, that has a bold vision of economic patriotism. And so to the extent that there is sometimes frustration, it is a, uh, a frustration that we're not doing enough to deal with the underlying circumstances and conditions uh, that led to populism. That, by the way, led to populism uh, 
in the United States and in Britain, where the north of England was deindustrialized and led to Brexit. And uh, I think there is an urgency in our party or some people saying if we don't tackle those things with sufficient urgency, then we continue to allow the conditions of populism and right wing populism to fester. Well, but President Obama, and his campaign slogan was, yes, we can. It wasn't, yes, I can. So in many ways, it feels like we treat our elections uh, as almost like going to the dentist, something you do every four years or every two years. And clearly people tend not to show up in those numbers necessary in midterms, which is what we are facing us in November. But it feels like you just punch a ticket and then you let you go away. So how do, you, how do political leaders sustain that kind of support that Obama had initially? But then people sort of said, well, okay, we voted for you, now become the miracle worker. I, I, I think the uh, issue was not becoming a, a miracle worker. The issue was, uh, what were we going to do uh, to revitalize uh, places that have been left out in the American economy? What were we going to do? Uh, to uh, make sure that workers had a, had a fair shot. And President Obama did a lot, and that's why he was a popular president, a two-time president. He also told a narrative about America that uh, we could be proud of. But, of course, not enough uh, has, was done, and that's uh, in, in part why we've seen uh, so much anger in such parts of the country. And so President Biden, I think, came in with a vision of rebuilding the middle class, rebuilding the working class, rebuilding the productive capacity of the United States. And I, I just think that uh, we, we want him to be out there and mobilizing the country to do that. Uh, and, he, he, you know, I've defended him, but obviously uh, it, it's on a leader to inspire a nation. I, I do think one of the things that is not successful is when the Democrats come in and say, uh, well, we're all headed down authoritarianism and we're, we're going to lose our democracy. I mean, we have to be clear-eyed, but come on. I mean, Lincoln defeated uh, uh, slavery. Uh, FDR defeated uh, Nazism. And you're telling me this greatest of great nations, America, is going to be destroyed by Donald Trump? Give me a break. We're far stronger than that. We're far more resilient than that. I still believe we're the greatest democracy in the world, and I, we've got more grit. And, you know, when, when leaders are there, they want... When you're in a plane, you want a pilot who says, I'm going to land it and I'm going to get to the other side. You don't want the pilot to tell you, oh, we may have this turbulence and that turbulence and I don't know what's going to happen with the plane. We've got to just be more decisive as a party. We're leading towards America's greatest moments of becoming the first truly multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy in the world. And again, I'm speaking with Representative Rokana, who represents California's 17th Congressional District, located in the heart of Silicon Valley. He's serving his third term, and he sits on the House Committees of Agriculture, Armed Services, and Oversight and Reform, where he chairs the Environmental Subcommittee. And additionally, he's Deputy Whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He serves also as Assistant Whip for the Democratic Caucus and the Democratic Vice Chair of the House Caucus on India and Indian Americans. He also served in President Barack Obama's administration as Deputy Assistant Secretary at the United States Department of Commerce. So given that the Republicans seem bent on, at least at the state legislature level, uh, in many key swing states, of rigging the, the playing field, I mean, obviously, People should not, you know, reinforce despair and suggest, oh, my God, the Republicans have rigged the game against us, therefore there's nothing we can do. The opposite should be true, as you pointed out. They should have their hair on fire. But specifically, 
what can be done? I mean, don't we have to mobilize an awful lot of voters to get out in November and just overwhelm whatever voter suppression the Republicans are throwing our way? We do, which is why I didn't understand the criticism when President Biden says we've got to go out and vote. I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, I think there's there has to be some sense of historical perspective here. I mean, I, we, we can't have a instant gratification view of politics. I mean, John Lewis was beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. My grandfather spent four years in jail with Gandhi in the 1940s fighting for India's freedom. He did that for 15 years. And I think people don't, I think, often appreciate how difficult it is to build political movements and how the odds that we have to overcome uh, are far less daunting than the odds that a Jim Clyburn or a John Lewis or a Dr. King get to overcome. So we've got to get on with it. We've got to mobilize. We've got to get out there. We've got to build on our majorities. We've got to recognize, yes, there are injustices. And uh, when there are injustices, the, the, the way to do overcome them is to get even more fired up and go out and organize and vote. Uh, and that that's all I think President Biden was saying when he said we've got to go out and vote and build majorities. Well, I spoke the other day with Gloria Steinem about the uh, Supreme Court decision to strike down Roe and Casey, and she said, if you don't vote, you don't exist. Well, I, uh, I, I think that's right in a literal sense. You certainly don't exist in the sense of uh, being counted as an American citizen or uh, part of the American uh, a, a political process. You are, uh, are, are ceding uh, uh, power to... Uh, to other individuals. And I, I understand the, 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 the frustration. Look, there's a discontent in a disconnect because people look at it and they say so much of big money influences politics. It's no longer the case that I can just show up to a town hall and my good ideas are going to make it to the legislative process. Uh, I, I think that this system is not working uh, and there are all these popular policies and we're still not getting changed. I, I get that. We're not a perfect democracy. We're far from it. But my point is, remember the odds that people have overcome in the past. I mean, this country had slaves. This country had people who weren't allowed to sit at the same dining table. I mean, they didn't sit there saying, well, you know, people, my voice doesn't matter. The country doesn't recognize my voice. They said, we're going to fight. We're going to fight for uh, the America we believe in. And we are uh, the beneficiaries of too much sacrifice of uh, too much uh, struggle to to give in to apathy. Well, progressives we earned the right to be apathetic. Well, history indicates that it was progressives and liberals that did all the heavy lifting. They ended slavery. They brought about the women's vote. They stopped the children working in factories and mines. They, you know, ended wars. They were first to to recognize the dangers of Nazism in the in the nineteen thirties. All of the heavy lifting has been done by liberals, so they have every reason to feel proud and motivated. But just to touch on the fact that you locate in the heart of Silicon Valley, what can be done to resurrect these Secret Service texts? Because it's so extraordinary that they were destroyed, at least it certainly looks that way. And when you look at all the reporting on what happened on January the 6th, particularly with with the Vice President uh, Pence, where he was down in the basement. Secret Service had spirited him down there. He didn't want to get into the limo because he, he said to his own Secret Service 
detail. I, you know, I trust you guys, but I don't know where the driver's going to take me. And then apparently uh, General Kellogg told Tony Anato, the deputy chief of staff of Secret Service guy in the White House, who was a real Trumpster, said, I, I don't trust you guys. You could send the vice president off to Alaska for all I know. So it looks as if there was a plot there to basically spirit away the vice president so he couldn't certify the elections and then Trump could throw it into back to the House and there are 26 uh, Republican legislatures, 22 Democratic legislatures, and thus he could um, get his second term. That looks like what the coup plot was all about. So this Secret Service texts and evidence seem to be key to make that case, surely. So what can be done to resurrect them, do you think? Well, it's uh, unconscionable that they deleted them. They were instructed specifically to preserve them. That is a uh, obstruction of uh, uh, an investigation, to be destroying uh, checks or emails. It's uh, Unfortunately, it's very difficult to recover a deleted texts. It's harder to recover than deleted emails uh, that are stored. Now, depending on the device, uh, maybe some of them are uh, in the cloud and, uh, you know, you can work uh, with the, the provider, uh, if it's Apple or, or, or someone else, to try to recover them and see what, what is possible in terms of, uh, uh, of recovery. But those are hard to recover in any criminal manner. So just in the last uh, couple of minutes then, Congressman Rokhanid, what do you expect on Thursday? Because it's so clear that the uh, House Select Committee investigating James the Sixth is building an incredibly clear and present case against Donald Trump. And, you know, the DOJ, of course, is a, has, uh, what, prosecuted something like 800 low-level guys. But I think many of us and most of, a lot of the country is crying out for some accountability from the big guys. And it looks like the number one architect of this coup was none other than Donald J. Trump. Well, you're right. And it, it was a not just the January 6th insurrection that horrified people. I think what the January 6th committee has done a very good job of showing is that Trump was literally trying to overturn the election by putting people into the Justice Department to create chaos, to invalidate state uh, legislative uh, slates and to overturn what the people wanted. And that uh, is a seditious conspiracy. Now, they will refer it to the Justice Department. I understand the difficulty that Merrick Garland has. I don't think it's political. I think he wants to make sure that whoever he prosecutes would actually stand up in a court of law. And the last thing you want to do is indict someone and then have them get acquitted. Uh, so I think he's being deliberate, and I uh, and I fully expect that uh, he will continue to go after people who uh, vi- clearly violated the law. But can you describe what happened? And I certainly do, and others are beginning to do. Use the F word. I mean, it it seemed to fit all the definitions of a fascist coup attempt. And I, my understanding of fascism is that if democracy breaks down and it no longer is it about about debate and discourse, and it becomes about brute force, which is exactly what happened on January the 6th. Isn't that textbook fascism? Well, I, look, yeah, the vice president of the party that lost certified the election of his opponent, and you had many Republicans across the country stand up against uh, 
uh, a bumbling effort by by Donald Trump. So while he may have had an intention to subvert the election, uh, he was thwarted because I think the, the democratic culture and traditions are more ingrained deeply in this country than uh, people realize. That said, there needs to be accountability, not just for Trump, but those around him, so that if the next Donald Trump comes around, people will know that uh, if they assist in that effort, they're going to go to jail or they're going to be held accountable. And even if you can't get Trump, if you can get people around him, that still will have a huge deterrent effect on another person trying to pull something like this off. Well, Representative Rokhan, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. And again, I've been speaking with Representative Rokhana, who represents California's 17th Congressional District, located in the heart of Silicon Valley. He's serving his third term, and he sits on the House Committee of Agriculture, Armed Services, and Oversight and Reform, where he chairs the Environmental Subcommittee. Additionally, he's the Deputy Whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and serves as the Assistant Whip for the Democratic Caucus and is the Democratic Vice Chair of the House Caucus on India and Indian Americans, and he served in President Barack Obama's administration as Deputy Assistant Secretary at the United States Department of Commerce. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the $839 billion defense budget in the House-passed National Defense Authorization Act, to which $37 billion that neither the Pentagon or the White House wanted was added. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Julia Gledhill, who is an analyst in the Center for Defense Information at the Project on Government Oversight, where she works to expose government waste, corruption, and wrongdoing, with specific focus on the Department of Defense. And she has an article at Tom Dispatch, How Pentagon Contractors Are Cashing In on Russia's Invasion. Welcome to Background Briefing, Julia Gledhill. Thank you for having me. So the House has passed a $839 billion defense bill, and they've added more, at least, what, $37 billion more than what Biden asked for. And it's basically a bipartisan deal. 180 Democrats, along with 149 Republicans, joined in this legislation So why is it that in this divided and polarized town of Washington, where political gridlock is the rule rather than the exception, why is it that the only bipartisan thing that they can agree on is throwing more money at the Pentagon? It's a great question. We have seen the military budget go up uh, year after year. Uh, despite the fact that the Department of Defense has, as I'm sure you know, never passed a full financial audit. Um, They actually only completed their first one in 2018. So it's a good question. Why would Congress give a department uh, that can't manage the budget that they have now even more money than it's asking for, than what senior Pentagon officials are asking for, what the White House is asking for? 
Um, and I wish I had a clean answer for you, but I will, I guess, speak to uh, the lobbying power of the defense industry. We know that the industry spent more than $118 million on lobbying Congress last year. Um, and then we also have, you know, direct contributions to members of Congress. Uh, so far in this election cycle, the defense sector has contributed $3.4 million to the 59 lawmakers on the House Armed Services Committee, which, of course, is the committee tasked with drafting the annual defense policy bill that that's the top line. Um, and the vast majority of that money contributed to Armed Services Committee members came from political action committees. So industry has quite a, quite a lot of money and power behind them to influence lawmakers. And they're making more money now out of the Ukraine war, right? Right. So um, there are a couple different, I think, motivating factors behind um, increasing the military budget this year. Um, obviously, the defense industry has um, money-making opportunity um, every single year with the Pentagon. Um, but war in Europe definitely, um, I think, helps them make a compelling case for increasing the top line, um, even though we have seen the president use presidential drawdown authority to uh, pretty quickly transfer, you know, arms and, and equipment over to Ukraine in the past several months. So one of the few, I guess, things that were stripped out as opposed to added in that weren't asked for by the Pentagon or by the White House was the sale of F-16s to Turkey, right? Yes, I do remember seeing that amendment. I don't remember exactly who offered it, but um, yes, there, there's definitely funding for, for F-16s going to Turkey. No, I thought, it was, I thought they scrapped uh, the, the F-16 sale to Turkey. Yeah, I think the amendment failed on the floor, but it was offered. That's right. Oh, I see. Okay. So, I have to double check, but that's, if I remember correctly, that's what right. happened. But there's a, a a controversial nuclear cruise missile, right, that uh, there are objections to, but they nevertheless went ahead and voted for that one, right, which is considered, you know, the last thing you need in a, when you've got nuclear brinkmanship going on in Ukraine. Yeah, and, you know, and just to put that into broader context, nuclear spending has been growing at such an unsustainable rate for a long time now. It is an area of Pentagon spending that's incredibly vulnerable to waste and abuse. And as you say, um, you know, modernizing all three legs of the nuclear triad at the same time, um, which I think, you know, many advocate for, um, does fuel tensions with Russia. Um, and, you know, from, from the project on government oversight's perspective until the Pentagon can demonstrate competence in managing, you know, this ever-expanding budget, there's really no reason to consider increasing funding in an area already susceptible to waste of taxpayer dollars. Um, yet we see those arguments over and over again in, in the defense space here. Well, they, they're arguing for a new ICBM, are they not? Intercontinental Ballistic Missile? Yeah. And that's incredibly expensive and uh, also considered fairly provocative. The most, you know, say so use it or lose it weapon. So on a hair trigger. So right. the nuclear budget is about, what, 30 billion, right? But isn't that a way that the Pentagon have used to lower their budget because so much other defense spending 
happens through other departments, like the Department of Energy, which is nuclear weapons, Department of Transportation, the Coast Guard, pensions are also being sloughed off. And it does seem that if you really did a, a real accounting of what the defense budget or the national security budget is, it's closer to $1.4 trillion, is it not, as opposed to the $839 billion. That's right. Um, and our, our friend and colleague, William Hartung, wrote a piece on that really recently. And it's true. I mean, we are inching closer and closer to a trillion and a half dollars in national security spending. And you're absolutely right that talking about the Pentagon-based budget versus national security spending as a whole um, can get really confusing and convoluted. And it's another way in which um, I think the, the DOD can make the case for um, a bigger bigger base budget, um, just because, uh, you know, the Pentagon, uh, the White House and Pentagon's request was $773 billion um, for, the, for the DOD base budget. Um, but in reality, we're, we're talking about a lot more money. And as you say, a lot of that nuclear funding is through the, the Department of Energy. And when you compare the alacrity with which the defense budget went through Congress, <laughs> compare that to build back better, you know, it makes you wonder what's wrong with our society in the broader sense. Is it why are we so eager to refine the quality of death as opposed to improve the quality of life? Right. <laughs> I um I'm trying to reflect to last fall, um, when I think the Senate was at least aspiring and trying to get to the NDAA um, and, may, and take a floor vote at the same time that Build Back Better was working its way through Congress. And, you know, the Senate never ended up voting on their own version of the NDAA. They ended up voting on the conference version because the House and the Senate pre-conference um, behind closed doors to try to negotiate the differences between their versions of the bill. Um, and you're right. I mean, I, I think uh, the NDAA is obviously the annual defense policy bill. It's a big deal. Um, yet a lot of it actually happens behind closed doors. Um, so I was heartened this week to see the Senate Armed Services Committee uh, release publicly their version of the NDAA bill. Um, and I'm hoping that they do take a floor vote on it so that we're not, um, you know, just seeing them vote on a conference version as well, uh, like they did last year. And again, I'm speaking with Julia Gledhill, who's an analyst at the Center for Defense Information at the Project on Government Oversight, where she works to expose government waste, corruption and wrongdoing with specific focus on the Department of Defense. And she is the co-author of an article at Tom Dispatch, How Pentagon Contractors Are Cashing In on Russia's Invasion. So is there any discussion, though, not that there's much debate, as I, as I point out, and which is clearly the case, that it's the one thing that the House and Senate are, agree on in a bipartisan way, and they just rubber stamp the defense budget, and they throw in the extra stuff that helps them re get reelected by putting defense plants in their district or having defense plants that are building weapon systems that are no longer wanted, extending the run of, of weapons by essentially making unnecessary buys, which happens all the time. I think the, the C-19 uh, cargo plane's an example. I mean, they have more C-130s in, in this country <laughs> than you could possibly ever need because of lobbying from Lockheed Martin in the state of, of Georgia. So 
this is a, a long-standing. In fact, if you go back to uh, President Eisenhower's farewell address, where he talked about, where he coined the phrase "the military-industrial complex," originally in the in the first draft of the speech, his farewell address, uh, he wrote the military-industrial congressional complex, and his brother Milton Eisenhower told him to take it out in deference to the didn't want to insult the Congress, but that's really what it is. It's the military-industrial-congressional complex, isn't it? Yes, I absolutely agree. As I said, um, you know, so far, just this election cycle so far, we have seen the defense industry contribute $3.4 million to the Armed Services Committee members. And that's just so far, right? Like November is still (laughs) a few months away. Um, But in an effort to inject some optimism um, into this conversation about what seems to be a limitless horizon for the defense budget, um, I I will just note that, yes, we did see Congress vote down. We saw the House vote down a couple of amendments to uh, cut the Pentagon budget this year. But the vote tally indicates some progress um, in terms of uh, pushing back on these efforts to, you know, increase the Pentagon budget every year without fail. Um, So last year, uh, the vote on an amendment to cut $25 billion to the Pentagon budget um, was 142 members for and 286 members against. Um, And then this year, we had 151 members vote for an amendment to reverse the House Armed Services Committee's $37 billion increase to the president's budget request. Um, so we we saw nine overall additions, people voting in favor of that Pentagon budget cut. Um, and notably, last year, we had zero Republicans vote in favor of cutting $25 billion from the Pentagon budget, while this year we had 14 Republicans vote in favor of reversing that $37 billion increase. So, um, you know, there is momentum building, uh, both in D.C., I think in the public and on the Hill. Um, and it is my explicit purpose to um, be a small part of hopefully maintaining that momentum. Well, Julia, though, is there, I mean, for example, going back through the Cold War, uh, starting, I guess, under Truman, when the first uh, sort of national security budget was um promulgated and essentially that's when the CIA was created and other aspects of national security and by the way I didn't intend when I mentioned the 1.4 trillion getting close to 1.1 trillion the intelligence budget of course is is not in the defense budget as well but national security itself has been narrowly defined in this country has it not just to military matters and military uh, spending as opposed to a broader definition of national security, which is the country's economic health, its social health, its moral health in a way. I mean, some analysts have argued that it was MTV, rock and roll, and blue jeans that brought down the Berlin Wall. So is there any sense in in Washington that the definition of national security should be broadened? Yes. I hear that a lot. And I'll also say, you know, as a young person, um, the global climate crisis 
is incredibly frightening. We are seeing it right now. Europe is very hot, as are the rest of us, I think. And um, a climate crisis is a security crisis. And there are efforts, um, at least in the advocacy community, and some on the Hill to make sure that those concerns are addressed. And just in closing, though, what about domestic security? I know we have the Homeland Security Department, but the FBI is issuing warnings that white nationalism, white supremacy, neo-Nazis, and we've seen a lot of them, and we certainly saw a lot of them on January the 6th. They're still around. You've got these militias um, still around. Trump, of course, used them on January the 6th, which we're learning from the uh, House uh, Select Committee's hearings. There was a profile done recently in the Vanity Fair by Jeff Charlotte, who spent time uh, with these militias and uh, with these the Christian nationalist churches. Apparently, there's an awful lot of Americans who not only expect a, a civil war, but they want a civil war. So is there any sense in Washington that while we're projecting all this power abroad and spending all this money uh, on weapon systems and fleets and, and aircraft, etc., and missiles pointed outward, that we're not looking inward at our own fragility? Yeah, I think that that's a really great question. And I'll add to it by saying that um, there have been efforts in the NDAA cycle this year to study and report to Congress the prevalence and role of extremist groups within our military. So in thinking through, you know, domestic security, my mind really goes to our service members as well, who um, sacrifice a lot and could be subject to these types of groups. Um, And so I think that it's really important to um, protect our service members and really understand how those forces are playing out within the military itself. Because as you say, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about projecting power abroad. um, And I think it's important to think through how that, how that approach actually impacts the folks on the ground. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, Julia Gledhill. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Julia Gledhill, who is an analyst at the Center for Defense Information at the Project on Government Oversight, where she works to expose government waste, corruption, and wrongdoing with a specific focus on the Department of Defense. And she's the co-author of an article at Tom Dispatch, How Pentagon Contractors Are Cashing In on Russia's Invasion. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining analogies between German industrialists supporting Hitler, who they thought was an embarrassment, and American plutocrats like Peter Thiel bankrolling Senate candidates like J.D. Vance, who have likened Trump to Hitler, but are now devoted Trumpsters doubling down on the stop the steal big lie. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, 
resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. Joining us now is David de Jong, who is a journalist who previously covered European banking and finance from Amsterdam and the hidden wealth and billionaire fortunes from New York for Bloomberg News. His work has also appeared in Bloomberg Businessweek, the Wall Street Journal, and the Dutch Financial Daily. He's a native of the Netherlands, and he currently lives in Tel Aviv, and is the author of the new book, Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. Welcome to Background Briefing, David de Jong. Thank you, Ian, for having me. So, David, I know on the political left in this country, more and more people are starting to use the F word, fascism, particularly in relation to what happened on January the 6th, which I think by any reasonable definition was a kind of fascist coup attempt. And as Donald Trump has not gone away, he controls the Republican Party and has all but announced he's running again. Can you make some analogies between the supporters of Donald Trump and the supporters of Adolf Hitler in the sense that, uh, uh, just, uh, just for example, Nazi Germany's biggest media baron, uh, Alfred Hugenberg. I mean, could you make a comparison with him with Rupert Murdoch? Ooh, I think those are, one should be very careful of making such uh, comparisons. I mean, the there are certain elements of the Republican Party which today which certainly have, you know, anti-authoritarian or, or authoritarian tendencies and anti-democratic uh, tendencies and to the extent I mean the analogy that I'm making mainly towards the between the um, industrialists uh, that I cover in my book and the financiers I cover in my book which are still Germany's wealthiest dynasties today um, the individuals that control uh, BMW, Porsche, Volkswagen, Allianz etc you know, it's if you look at, for instance, the Russian oligarchs uh, that are backing Putin, I mean, there's a lot of analogies there. When you look at the thing that happened in the U.S. far more, in a way, secretly, but also at the same time publicly, is the way that money and, and you know, for instance, Citizens United ruling by the Supreme Court back in 2010, um, and the amount of dark money on both sides of the aisle, to the extent that anonymous funding, you know, hundreds of millions that are being pumped into the American political system, and that are perverting uh, politics, and that are also eroding American democracy every day. I would say that is in itself also, you know, I mean, there are so many I see democracy in the United States being eroded on a daily basis. Um, would I make a a you know broader sweeping comparison between the supporters of of the Republican Party today and and those that support the Nazi Party? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far. I mean, there are factions in the Republican Party, as I said 
earlier that are anti-democratic and authoritarian leaning and also are completely cut off from reality in a way and are also you know the news that are they are taking in are, is not news that is based in fact it is rooted in fact that is deeply problematic um so in a sense you are right i mean it is not only uh, media channels like fox news i mean there are many others which are creating this kind of echo chamber uh with with where the news is this is kind of in the upside down and it is unfortunately a tendency you're not only seeing in the United States, but you're seeing globally, and you're seeing it in the West too, or you're seeing it in Russia. Um, um, yeah, I mean, you're seeing it. You're seeing it everywhere at the moment. It's, um, well, I guess you know, making the analogy with Alfred Hugenberg and right. Murdoch, Hugenberg, along with Paul von Hindenburg, were. Prussian aristocrats who looked right. upon Hitler with disdain. They thought he was, you know, <laughs> an embarrassment in many ways. But they, they decided to join him to defend the Christian conservative way of life against liberalism, atheism, socialism, and Marxism. I mean, it's Franz von Papen who convinced, who convinced Paul von Hindenburg, Franz von Papen, the, the Catholic former chancellor, who convinced Hindenburg to put Hitler into power on point him on January 30th, 1933? His literal words were to um, were to, to Hindenburg, were, I, I can control him. And the reason that von Papen did it was out of revenge because he wanted to return as chancellor and he actually thought he could control Hitler, which is one of the most most catastrophic. Um, you know, calculations in in in, in modern history, um, or in, perhaps in, in history of all time. But is it? But you know, from Papen, and you're completely right about that. Like Hugenberg, and like many of the industrialists I write about, who were already extraordinarily wealthy before Hitler seized power. You know, had a massive disdain for Hitler. Looked down on Hitler and and the Nazi Party as these clown-esque, you know, garish figures uh, from the impoverished German hinterlands um, and did not start to take them seriously until the Great Depression uh, erupted and and with that, and, and Wall Street was wiped out. And you see the Nazi Party's first electoral success in, 19, in September 1930, where they rode into the into parliament as the second largest party. And but even then, you know, most of German business was still the business establishment was 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 very apprehensive of it. And it wasn't until he seized power actually on January 3rd of 1933 that that opened really the door for full-fledged support where he promised. Uh, economic stability and po and political stability after 14 years of economic and political volatility of the Weimar Republic, and initially, you know, he made good on that promise. With um, rearmed with initiating rearmament and having billions of Reichsmarks flowing to the coffers of uh, of industrialists and their um, and their arms manufacturing companies. And that is also something, by the way, that you saw with the Russian oligarchs, where they got their wealth, 
just like the German industrialists got their wealth in the Weimar Republic, part of it, and or, or rose to great wealth in the Weimar Republic and the volatility of hyperinflation, um, and consolidated their and consolidated their power under the Nazi regime. It was the same with the Russian oligarchs with Yeltsin and the economic and political volatility and uh, and they're consolidated. They're making the, the, this devil's pact with uh, with Vladimir Putin. And again, I'm speaking with David de Jong, who is a journalist who previously covered European banking and finance from Amsterdam and hidden wealth and billionaire fortunes from New York for Bloomberg News. His work has also appeared in Bloomberg Businessweek, The Wall Street Journal and The Dutch Financial Daily. He's a native of the Netherlands and he currently lives in Tel Aviv and is the author of the new book, Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. Well, in terms of that, the devil's pact and the contempt, that the industrialists had for Hitler, but nevertheless funded him for the March 33 campaign. You have a situation here in the United States where there seems to be a similar hypocrisy, which is an inadequate word to describe. For example, there's a libertarian billionaire, Peter Thiel, who's bankrolling a couple of Senate candidates, one of whom, running in Ohio, J.D. Vance, basically has trashed... Trump in the past, and even called him a Nazi, but yet he is completely buying into all of Trump's MAGA lies like stop the steal, etc. And the same with Blake Masters in Arizona, another protege yeah. of Peter Thiel, who's running hard on the uh, stop the steal lie. Yeah. Obviously, that's that's the ultimate in cynicism, and I'm that's what I was focusing on, the kind yeah. of cynicism involved in, in helping a political leader who's obviously dangerous at the same time you're figuring, well, we can control him and he'll make us rich. Well, I mean, I, I, first of all, I mean, we already had Trump in power for four years and, and that ended as an absolute disaster um, um, and was for much of his tenure. But it is, and I would, I would say the analogy is in the opportunism. It is the opportunism for power. It is these... People who are, you know, were anti-Trump a couple of years ago or were establishment Republicans or establishment conservatives a couple of years ago and are now peddling these jingoist, you know, um, rhetoric, but also these, these conspiracy theories in order to gain the vote. So they're capitalizing on on ignorance and on on conspiracy theories in order to gain to gain their own power. You know, and they, these people don't actually believe that. But, you know, people are these days are just like back then are seeming to willing to believe uh, anything. But, you know, I don't even think that Trump is going to uh, be the next uh, presidential candidate uh, for the Republican Party. I think it's going to be Ron DeSantis. Uh, who is, you know, um, is engaging in similar practices, and I think uh, equally um, equally dangerous as governor of, of Florida, and you know, kowtowing to the same kind of big money interests as as um, right. You could argue you could argue he may be even more dangerous than Trump, since he's smarter. Right, right. Apparently so. So so right. I've read. I mean, right. and, and, yeah. So your book, Nazi Billionaires, profiles a number of these powerful German families that got incredibly rich during World War II. And of course, Gunther Quandt, 
whose fortune still exists within the BMW group. Yeah. Uh, it's estimated uh, at his heirs, Stefan Quant and Suzanne Clatton, are basically worth about $38 billion today. Yeah. And Gunter Quant, of course, made a fortune in World War One, selling uniforms to the German army. Uh, he, then he later married a 17-year-old Magda Friedlander, uh, with whom he had one child, and then she divorced him, and then Magda married, of all people, Joseph Goebbels. And then, of course, she murdered her six children along with him before they killed themselves in 1945. So uh, this is the DNA of these uh, fortunes, right, that live on today. I mean, the Quant family and Gunter Quant after, after World War II ended, you know, shifted all the blame, um, said that he was forced to join a Nazi party and that he was, you know, a supporter of the resistance and, and that he was apolitical and that he was a, a, a victim even of the uh, of the Nazi regime, and nothing could have been further, further from the truth. Gunter Quandt and his eldest son Herbert were two of the largest profiteers of uh, of the Nazi regime. Had almost sixty thousand forced and slave laborers in their arms and uh, arms and batteries factories. Um, you know, expropriated uh, Jewish owned businesses in in Germany. Expropriated. Um, businesses in German-occupied territories across Europe, and he was one of the largest weapons producers for uh, for the Nazi war machine. And you know the reason why I wrote the book is because you have this blatant whitewashing going on in um, you know by companies like BMW or Porsche, where they are maintaining global foundations and media prizes. And, and academic chairs and corporate headquarters in the name of men who committed Nazi war criminal, Nazi war crimes, and they celebrate their business successes, but they leave out their their war crimes. Um, and and you know it is this 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 perverted uh, historical you know method or anti-historical method that these families are deploying to whitewash history on a global scale. And the other family that you profile, of course, are the Fink family, this secretive descendants of the Nazi wartime bankers. They're alive and well today, and they're big contributors to the AFD, right? Alternative for Deutschland, the right-wing party. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's never actually been proven, but, but August von Fink Jr. was um, thought to be one of the largest backers. He died in November 2021 in London. It will be one of the largest backers of the um, of the AfD in its initial phases, when it also shifted from being an anti-euro currency party to being a anti-immigrant and also a you know racist and and uh, Holocaust denying um, party uh, to an extent. But there's no question that Germany did, unlike Japan, for example, did make concerted efforts for transparency in terms of what happened during the Nazi regimes, and school children were taught real history. Uh, yeah. But one of the things that just in terms of of war crimes, which of course is a big subtext of your book, yeah. the extent to which slave labor was used, and the SS were partners in many of these ventures. Yeah. The German, the government at the moment of Schultz seems to be, the social democratic government seems to be very reluctant to really face what's really happening in Ukraine in terms of Putin's war crimes. Yeah. I mean, they talk a good game about 
helping Ukraine, but they've been very slow in delivering on their promises of weapons, mm -hmm. etc. And it's very puzzling. Uh, and we know people that overtly support Hitler, <laughs> I said Hitler, slip of the time, uh, Putin, like Gerhard yeah. Schroeder. So do you see any links there to the past? I mean, Germany, I mean, the reason is quite clear. Germany has become made itself completely beholden to uh, Russian gas. And they had many, many times, uh, you know, they had many occasions where they could have, particularly after Russia's um, um, occupation of the Crimea in, in February, March 2014, where they could have weaned themselves off of this addiction. And they did not. They doubled down on their decisions. This was initiated under Helmut Kohl in the 1990s. Uh, Gerhard Schröder ramped it up, so did Angela Merkel. And, you know, uh, Olaf Scholz now has to be, deal with the hand that he's dealt, and he's not doing a very good job in that, in that sense, in my opinion, because he's he's stuck, you know. He's, he, yeah, I mean, they ramped up the, the defense budget with uh, 100 billion euros, about 100 billion dollars for next year. But meanwhile, Russia is, you know, profiting greatly from the from from Germany's and Western Europe's to 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 a lesser extent gas addiction, um, and they have them to the, you know, they have them by the, uh, you know, the Russia has, had, yeah, exactly, and she's. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I thank you for joining us here today, David. I appreciate it. Ian, it was a great pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with David de Jong, who is a journalist who previously covered European banking and finance from Amsterdam and hidden wealth and billionaire fortunes from New York for Bloomberg News. His work has also appeared in Bloomberg Businessweek, The Wall Street Journal, The Dutch Financial Daily, and he's a native of the Netherlands and he currently lives in Tel Aviv. And he's the author of the new book, Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.